Cassie. It was an absolutely gorgeous day today in Augusta. The sun came through the towering Georgia pines, and I ate both a pimento cheese and and an egg salad sandwich while watching Jordan Spieth almost ace the 12th hole. Mm, that sounds like a perfect, perfect day. Yeah, it's, it's tough to, uh, to say anything more perfect than that. If only he could have done that last year. Yeah, right. That would have been that would have been easy, huh? <laughs> Just walk away with the tournament then. <laughs> well, it's like Christmas morning right now, to be honest. Unfortunately, some troubling weather it looks like kind of coming our way uh, for for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday here. But it's not going to dampen our spirit at the post. We're going to keep on uh, giving you a lot of good coverage. You can go on to globalgolfpost.com. Some uh, some great coverage there already. Ron Green Jr. has a pair of articles in there where he talks about Augusta heartbreak. Uh, Jordan Spieth is definitely involved in that. And the 20th anniversary of Tiger's historic win here in 1997. So tons of good content. And if you haven't read John Hopkins' piece on Seve Ballesteros, Cassie, what can we say about this? What a tremendous piece of journalism. Oh, there's nothing to say. You just have to go read it. Go visit globalgolfpost.com right now after listening to us, obviously, and then go read this story because it will move you. It will give you great insight to Seve, great insight to other players that look up and respect to Seve. It's it's an unbelievable piece. Yeah, so many great Ryder Cup stories in there. Paul Azinger, Tom Lehman kind of going up against Seve at different points. Uh, he would have turned 60 this upcoming Masters Sunday, and we uh, we miss him dearly. And uh, we're going to bring on the author of that tremendous piece, John Hopkins, here in a moment. But first, Cassie, we really have to touch on what transpired this past weekend at the uh, ANA Inspiration, where Lexi Thompson was retroactively assessed a four-stroke penalty coming down the stretch of a major. She was up by two, then ended up trailing by two because a viewer had sent an email in saying that Lexi had incorrectly replaced a marked ball on the 17th green the day prior in the third round. So two strokes for playing from the wrong place, two more for signing an incorrect scorecard. Thompson actually rallied to force a playoff, but lost to Sillion Yu. Cassie, just your gut reaction kind of as you were watching this unfold. Well, my first question right off the bat, other than yelling at the TV first, <laughs> which thank goodness no one else was here, but was why was someone watching the third round when, on Sunday morning when live golf was being played? I just I just don't understand that. I, and and who sends an email in, which another thing I don't understand. I, if you know the email address, I would love to know it, but I don't know it off the top of my head. That's what I, I was I wondering. Just, yeah. Right, well, like, what is the email have, address for the uh, for the LPGA call-in? <laughs> LPGA at AOL.com? I don't know. But I, I just don't, under, I don't understand that. I, I, I don't get the next day email in, I guess. No, neither do I. So, I mean, a few things here. No other sport retroactively penalizes players. I mean, obviously, you can't watch a basketball game like the, what happened on Monday night with North Carolina and Gonzaga and say, uh, oh, there was a foul or that guy was touching out of bounds. I'm going to call in the next day and make sure the uh, the results of the game has changed. So that, that shouldn't really happen in golf. If that doesn't happen in other sports, any other sport for that matter, why should an outside influence, some guy in his basement eating Cheetos is going to influence whether Lexi Thompson is a major champion or not? That, that seems a little bit harsh don't you? Absolutely. I, I, I honestly just don't understand it. I Again, there were so many memes last night, um, <laughs> or I guess on Monday night, excuse me, on um, the NCAAs. And I saw 
North Carolina had their hand out when they had the ball in their hand and everyone was like, hey, LPGA, what's your email address? Gotta, <laughs> you know, we need to call this in. This is a, against the rules. But I, I don't know. I, I don't think, like you said, people on their couch, people wherever they're watching the golf, they should not be allowed to call in. I just, they, they can't, viewers can't make the outcome. You know, like referees shouldn't have the out, like make the outcome for a games, NFL games, NBA games. Viewers should not be able to make the outcome for the LPGA, PGA Tour, whatever golf is on TV that week that you're watching. No matter what the sport is, you want the players to decide what the outcome is. And I mean, if you look at that UNC Gonzaga game on Monday night, the ref called a lot of fouls. I mean, I think Gonzaga was in the double bonus with 10 minutes left in the game. They really influenced the, 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 the outcome of the game. But I feel like this is even worse, having someone who's not even affiliated with anything, just someone sitting on their couch calling in and then influencing whether, you know, Lexi Thompson won the event or not. She should have won the event. She didn't. It's, uh, it's pretty tough. My solution to this is pretty simple. Have a rules official just in the truck on site and... Whether it's right after the scorecard is signed or maybe there's a grace period of an hour or two later, you have to be able to call it as it is at some point and just say, hey, I was watching the telecast. I didn't see anything. Okay, we're, we're done with this round. We cannot go and retroactively penalize someone at that point. Yeah, it should be final after that round. It should be final. But I agree with you that a rules official could be in a trailer watching the golf as it goes, whatever. That's fine. But at the same time, I think, you know, the USGA and RNA really have to look at this rule and say, do we want this happening, you know, every year now? It happened at the U.S. Open. I mean, just all these rules are coming up. And I think they have to really figure out if they want viewers calling in and ruining a major championship like that or any tournament for that matter. Absolutely agreed. And, and one thing's to clear up, this really isn't on the LPGA. I, I know that's kind of an easy thing to point to. It's an easy scapegoat to blame the LPGA for this. But they don't get to say really whether they enforce these rules or not. They're, they're there to enforce the rules and the, the rules are already there in place. So it wasn't their decision to give her a four-stroke penalty. They're just, they're just doing their jobs and enforcing the rules. So really, really the problem is not in the enforcement here. It's in the fact that these rules actually exist where you are allowed to call in and be able to, to change the uh, the impact of the game. So we will see how that unfolds, especially with the 2019 rules proposal coming up. Hopefully that is addressed and we can kind of get rid of all of this nonsense. All right, and now we welcome on the legendary and incomparable John Hopkins. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. It's a pleasure. Right off the bat, I think everyone would like to uh, thank you for this piece that you put together on, on SEBI. How did you go about putting something like this together, how long did it take? Uh, it took me three months. But if I actually worked out how long, if I was full-time every day, I would say it took a month. I started it um, the first week in January uh, when I was down in the Middle East at a tournament and I just picked off players. Uh, I then did a bit when I got home. I then went back down to the Middle East, saw some other players. Then I did a lot of interviewing uh, what a number of interviews just by driving to see people, Sam Torrance, Ken Schofield, George O'Grady. Uh, and then I hit the telephone. 
phone calls to um, having, first of all, found out what their numbers were to Hale Irwin in Arizona, to Tom Lehman in Arizona, to Paul Asinger in Florida, I guess. But I'm, I mean, the numbers mean very little to me. I can't tell where they were, but uh, um, they were all very, very helpful. And I finished it. I mean, I was a typical journalist, really, in the sense that we always, time expands according to how much time you have. And I knew that I had to file it by the 14th of March or something like that. So I was never going flat out. But I was pleased to be able to spend as much time on it as I did. Yeah, I think I, I echo Sean in saying thank you so much for writing that piece. It was wonderful, tear-jerking, everything to read. Um, after gathering all of your stories and going back and looking at what you had written on Seve in the past, did you learn anything new about him as a player or a person? Well, I suppose in very broad terms, I mean, I knew he was fantastically exciting, volatile, foul-mouthed, loved... Uh, eccentric, um, irritating, bad-tempered, humorous. I knew all those things, um, but I didn't know the detail that the players told me and, and indeed the caddies told me. So, as I say, in broad detail, yes, I didn't, I didn't learn anything that I didn't know about an important aspect of his character, but I learned dozens of things that served as examples of each of those parts of his character. A lot of these stories in the in the piece are unbelievable. The one that I keep on coming back to is when he had the, the wall to go over mm. and the 70-foot mm. tall trees to go over as well, and his backswing was impeded at the same time. Mm. Did any of these stories uh, shock you or ones that you didn't remember? Or? Well, first of all, don't forget that I was extremely fortunate, but I was 20 yards back from the bunker in 1983 when he hit the three wood. And one of the wonderful pictures that accompanied my piece actually shows Nick Fowler standing there with his arms crossed. And, and I didn't know Nick was there, and I must have been a little bit to his left. But anyway, I saw that, and I thought, well, this is... this is Actually, the hairs on the back of my neck not only stood out then, they're standing out now, 40 years later, uh, at the memory of it. Uh, so the bar was pretty high for me. But I kept hearing about these stories from... The, the, just in the group of journalists would be sitting around over lunch or something like that and Seve would come up or escape shots would come up or something and people would talk about this one in particular, the one in Crom. So I went to Billy Foster and he told it beautifully. It is actually part of a an after-dinner speech that he now gives uh, and um, he's got it very polished. And, you know, the conversation backwards and forwards, the, the clubs where he was and how at the end he says, Sevy, please, please, I know you're, 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 you think you're a magician, but you're not, you're Sevy Ballesteros. Please, four times he said, please chip it out sideways. Um, and the line that I liked was that um, Billy was there and every time Sevy said, no, no, I, I can see it. And, and, and there was a wall in front of him and Billy thought, oh, this is terrific. His ball is going to crash into the wall, ricochet, hit Seve between his eyes, kill him. I'm going to have no percentage money this week, and I'm going to have no box. That's the line I really like. Hoppy, these Ryder Cup stories are all so tremendous, especially the ones involving Seve and Paul Azinger. Describe the dynamic between these two players. 
Well, they're both very similar. They mm. both want to win. They're both very passionate. They're very fiery. Paul was in, in at the Masters today, and I had a chat with him, and, and um, thankfully, he seems to think that I got it pretty much right you know, on the money. Um, but, uh, you know, you put, as he, I believe he said, he certainly said it to me, whether I included in the story, if you get two passionate people together fighting for their continent, their country and their continent, well, sparks are going to fly. And fly they did. Uh, so uh, nobody was surprised. What is nice now is that the, the memory that when Asinger was diagnosed with cancer, which was not many years after Kiowa, one of the first letters, and indeed a telephone call, Paul told me, was from Seve, saying you know some really nice things. And Asinger now says, yes, it's perfectly true that we, we got very cross with one another, but we always conducted our anger within the bounds of decency. Stevi didn't accuse Asinger of cheating. He accused the referee of, in the incident at the Belfry, of a bad drop, which is not the same as saying, uh, as Asinger at one stage thought, that you're using gamesmanship here, or, you're, or that is illegal. That's not the same thing. So Stevi was very clear to, to make sure that his insults were uh, directed at the, at the referee, Andy McPhee. And then in, in 91, well, that was an open and shut case, really. However long it went on, and the discussion on the 10th tee went on for something like 20 minutes. In the course of my research, I didn't ever quote him, but I found the American Observer, a pro called uh, Bob Joyce, I think his name was, and he and the European Observer, um, Jimmy Patino, the owner of Valderrama, had gone up the fairway to stand and look back and see where the two drives. And when nothing happened for a few minutes, and they, they could just about see that there was a huddle going on the tee, and they waited and they waited and they waited, and they eventually had to walk all the way back and find out why aren't you playing. Now, in that time, it was heated, the captains would call in and so on, but there was never any doubt that the Americans had played the wrong ball on the wrong hole. They had, uh, Chip Beck had not used the ball with which he started. Uh, and Asinger admitted that. And I believe he said to Sevi in the course of the altercation, look, we, we have not, we made a mistake. Uh, and it took some time, I think, before the Spaniards and Sevi, who Sevi was leading the discussion. Olafable, good bit younger, admittedly his third Ryder Cup, but nonetheless very much the, the quieter of the two. Uh, he didn't say very much. Sevi was leading the discussion. It took some time before Sevi felt, I think, that he had got his point across. Uh, and Asinger also had got his point across because Chip Beck didn't, apparently didn't say a word. He just stood to one side. Uh, so Asinger was the spokesman, and it took time for him to get his view across, which was, all right, we'll hold our hands up and say, on that hole, we used the wrong ball. And then the referee had to decide what to do. And the referee decided that as it was on the 8th, and the Europeans didn't complain or point it out on the ninth tee, it was too late. So everything went on from there. But it was a 20-minute animated discussion. Uh, and there is footage of it on television, and you can call it up on YouTube as well. 
Seve never forgot anything, it doesn't seem. And uh, I think he still blames the referee for the Ryder Cup loss with the, with the, the drop being uh, that 70-yard uh, range of Azinger won at 40 yards forward, Seve won at 30 yards back, so he kind of found the median. And he still thinks to this day, or would, would think to this day, that he would uh, have lost that Ryder Cup match because of the referee. He kind of had a, a memory that uh, would hold on to things, didn't he? Well... The thing about Seve was that if you ever crossed him, he would never forget. He had a dark and slightly suspicious mind, and he tended to think that everybody was against him. And I think that the phrase I use in the story is that he never had any difficulty in imagining that there were dragons around the corner, even though they might have been friendly dragons, because he thought that there were always were dragons around the corner, and they were always out to get him. So he was always on his guard. Uh, and consequently... Um, you, you had to earn his respect because until you got his respect, he would be looking at you out of the corner of his eye thinking, what is this man trying to do to me? Or what is this person trying to get out of me? Why is he trying to disadvantage me? It, it, it was, but of course, this was why he was so good because he, if he perceived that everybody was against him, then he'd just square his shoulders and stick out his chin and say, right, well, I'm going to beat them all. I won't just beat one, I'll beat them all. And that, that's what he did. And that's how he established these crusades. The crusade to prove to Carmen's parents that he was good enough to marry Carmen. The crusade to prove that European golf was good enough to, first of all, to play in America and then win a Ryder Cup in America. The crusade to prove that Spanish golfers were good enough to lead the European in invasion of America and so on and so on. When Seve, when a man with a mind like that decides to channel these dark forces into such a way that they strengthen him, him or her, then that person becomes very, very powerful. Hoppy, we can't let you go without talking about the Masters, an event Seve cherished. Not too long ago, there was only one Englishman in the field. Now we have 13. How can you explain the jump here? Well, um, okay. First of all, we have 11 Englishmen, which is a record from any country other than America. And 11, interestingly, is the number of a cricket team. So it's a very easy way for an Englishman used to playing and watching cricket to remember. Uh, biggest ever squad of players other than from America. And it dates back, I mean, part it dates back to Seve. I mean, Seve created, began the surge in interest in European golf. That resulted in more countries wanting good coaches to produce young players. And in John Jacobs, the great coach, we had arguably the best coach in Europe, mm -hmm. who suddenly found towards the end of his career that his talents were finally being recognized and there was a huge appetite for him. So he taught the coaches, who are in many cases now teaching the players. And you talk to Butch Harmon or David Ledbetter or Hank Haney over here, and, and they'll say, John Jacobs was the father of coaching. It's very rare for someone from Britain to be given worldwide status like that, but John did. So the principles that he taught, the ball flight system, and, and the, the ball tells you how you hit it, and so on, the coaches have adopted. Now, in addition, they have benefited from the technological advances, advances of TrackMan and that sort of thing, GPS and all the rest. Sure. So now the coaching has become such that you can actually start coaching probably a five-year-old 
technically. And as we saw the drive, chip and putt on Sunday, you've got little kids of seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven who have wonderful techniques. They don't have the power and the strength, but it will all come. So they're developing younger. So, John, first of all, the attraction of playing golf because of Seve Bumasteros. Then the coaching of John Jacobs, teaching the coaches, who then spread out around Europe and taught players. And in the case of Sweden and Germany and France and Italy, uh, they put a lot of money into the development of a small number of golfers. Same thing was going on in England, and with the arrival of lottery money, you know, we do that, the lottery is available every Saturday. With the arrival of lottery money, English, British sport has been revolutionized. The reason why we, we came, we have done so well in the Olympic Games, is that the lottery has provided money for the very best sportsmen, world-class sportsmen, to be given financial support so that they can train full-time at whatever their sport is. And this is obviously something that's only available to a few countries. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's why our rowers are so good, why our cyclists are so good, why so many of our athletes are so good. They are being supported full-time financially by... It's not government money, it's money raised by citizens of the country. comes to the same thing. A small, uh, obviously, uh, 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 compared to the overall sum, the, the 800,000 per year that the English Golf Union gets from Sport England mm -hmm. is a drop in the ocean. But it's enough, it's considerably more than the Welsh Golf Union, Golf Union of Wales get, for example. It may not be smaller than the Irish Golf Union, it may not be, it may not be smaller than the Scottish Golf Union. But anyway, all four countries have got proper performance directors, proper coaching, so that if you're 12 and you're good, you will almost certainly have access to a uh, a nationally qualified coach who is known to be good. And by the time you're 14, you're on the radar and, and they're watching you all the time. And when you get to 16 or 17 and you, as many of these kids do, you've left school and you're playing full-time amateur golf. Well, if you're really good, then the English golf union in particular will send you abroad. They'll send you to Argentina. They'll send you to Australia for a month in January. They'll send you to South Africa. That is why English golf is as good as it is now but in broad terms, it's why European golf is as good as it is. One of those European players that has definitely benefited from a system like that is Rory McIlroy here at Augusta now, trying for the third time to to complete the career Grand Slam. Is this in his head now at this point? Is Augusta in his head? Yeah, I think Augusta is in his head. But he, he, he was uh, in the interview room this afternoon. And I thought, I haven't seen him look quite so relaxed and composed mm. ever. He was really, really good, and he admitted, yes, of course, you know, you walk, he walked down the 10th, especially the year after, and, and he looks in the trees where he hooked his, his tee shot, and then he looked at where he hit his second shot. Yeah, but, it, you know, these are pros now. They, they learn how, when something like that has happened, they put it out of their head, they put it out of their head. And he says that there will be no difficulty, Jordan will have no difficulty in dealing with the 12th when he comes to it on Thursday. I'm not so sure. Hmm. I'm not so Me sure. <laughs> I, I think uh, what he is saying is what he wants to say and what, because he doesn't want people to think that he is in any way affected by what he did in, in 2011 and he doesn't want people to think really that Jordan is affected. But you know, there's a well-known British sporting psychologist uh, who has worked with, our, in particular, our cyclists who are sensationally successful. His name is Dr. Steve Peters. And he has developed a theory called the chimp theory. 
and the chimp is what sits on your shoulder, on Rory's shoulder, when he stands on the tenth tee, and the chimp is saying, watch it, Rory, it, four years ago or five years ago, you hooked it badly into the tree. Just watch out. Don't do it again. And, and Steve Peters' lesson is silence the chimp. And how do you silence the chimp? By not acknowledging that he's there. You know he's there. You know he's jabber, jabber, jabber in your ear with all these dark thoughts. But you simply say, shut up. I'm not paying attention to you. I, I mean, I don't care who you're talking to. I'm not hearing it. And it's a very powerful a mental trick and it's he has acquired a great deal of notoriety in Britain the chimp theory silence the chimp mm. and Jordan will have to silence the chimp on, on when he gets to the 12th on Thursday Rory will have to silence the chimp you know he's had a number of bad rounds but actually to get back to the original question he looks to me to be very very good he's had 99 rounds of practice this year and he'll probably weather permitting have another nine holes tomorrow. So he will go over the hundred holes. Did I say 99 rounds? I meant, I meant 99 holes. Um, he will go over the hundred holes. Now this compares with some players who come in and play little more than 18 holes. Mm. Rory has never been so well prepared as he is this year. Mm. And, and therefore, I, I dare say in due course, you're going to ask me who I think will win. Um, well, you'd have, you'd have a job to look beyond him. Mm. He's certainly one of three or four players. Dustin Johnson on your list? Yeah, I think Dustin is unquestionably on me. You can't ignore a man who's won his last three tournaments, who's as powerful as he is. However, four in a row? Would be four in a row if he won, yeah. yeah. Four in a row is a big ask. Mm. This is a very mentally draining tournament uh, because of the challenges that the players had. I always remember Lee Westwood coming off a good many years ago when he didn't like the course he said oh, I've got a splitting headache I've got to go and lie down it's just dealing with this course makes me feel ill and I and it will affect <laughs> as good a player as Dustin I'm not sure that I think he can do well there's no doubt he can win will he win not sure alright John Hopkins thank you so much for your time it was a pleasure it's a pleasure thank you very much for having me so Cassie our schedule for this week is we only have one event, the Masters, obviously. Hopefully, it does not get too plagued by weather. But either way, we're going to go right into Bingo Bingo Bongo. Last week in Houston, Cassie, I had Rafa Cabrera Bello to win. He missed the cut. My sleeper was Charlie Hoffman. He ended up T23, so not too bad of a tournament for, uh, for Hoffman. He plays pretty well in Houston. Patrick Reed was my player to surprisingly miss the cut. He did miss the cut, so, so that's, a, that's a good thing. So there you go, huh? <laughs> um, my picks last week were um, Henrik Stenson to win. He missed the cut. Um, my surprise player was Rafael Campos, who actually played pretty well and had a top 10 finish for the second week in pick. a row. Great pick. He gets into the RBC Heritage next week. So that'll be cool if he gets on a little run here. And I picked Adam Scott to miss the cut, and he did. He did do that. So um, maybe one point for me. Oh yeah, well you definitely get a point. You, get, you should get more than one point, though. No, well, that's okay. A, a top I'll, ta- oh, I'll okay. just take one. Okay. I'll just take one. It's I'll fine. give you a point. That sounds good. Uh, thanks. <laughs> so moving on to the Masters, kind mm-hmm. of a, a big week here for picks. Um, who do you have to win? I mean, can can you bet against DJ right now? No, you can't. <laughs> no, so <laughs> I'm going to DJ. He's the odds-on favorite. <laughs> He is the odds-on favorite. So um, he finally got his major under his belt last year at the U.S. Open. I, I think he's going to do it four in a row. 
I mean, he's playing such great golf. I just can't see him losing this week. I mean, it's hard to imagine him not playing well, I think. I mean, after winning three straight times, it like Hoppy said, it's a lot to ask four straight times of, uh, of Dustin Johnson winning on the, on the PGA Tour. But, I mean, it's tough to bet against him. I'm going to go with John Rahm just because I think he's been the second best player um, other than Dustin Johnson in the past couple of months. I, I've been incredibly impressed with him. He won in San Diego. He came very close in Mexico. He came close again in match play. I, I think he really is right now. Um, if there was a top 10 in terms of how everyone's playing at the moment, I would definitely have John Rum ahead of players like Henrik Stenson, who have not played well. Henrik missed the cut in Tampa, missed the cut in Houston. I think John Rum is playing much better golf, and uh, I like him to, to win this tournament. Wouldn't it be great to see um, a duel against DJ and John Rom for a third time in three events now, right? Yeah, kind of a, a rivalry almost, yeah, even though thir- uh, they're 10 years apart. Hey, and third time's a charm, so maybe your pick is right in John Rahm. Uh, maybe. We never know. Uh, we never know. I'm going to go with Shane Lowry as my uh, as my sleeper pick. Ball striking machine. T15 on tour in total driving. Fifth in greens and regulation. And tenth in strokes gain. T to green. The problem is the putter with him. He always struggles in the greens. But he opened up the 68 last year in Augusta. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like Shane can kind of make a run here. Uh, good pick there, actually. I really like that pick. Um, my sleeper is going to be Tommy Fleetwood. I'm I'm still on the Tommy Ride Fleetwood the train. train. I'm just going to keep doing it until he wins, and I'm going to just keep picking him as my sleeper until everyone knows his name. Um, <laughs> he's playing really well. I don't. I I think he's going to perform well too at the Masters. I don't. I don't see why he, why he can't. He should play very well, like uh, Hoppy was saying. One of those eleven Englishmen in the field. And another one of those Englishmen that I think is going to perform poorly, and I think we, we both are in agreement on this, Danny Willett, last year's Masters champion, has not played well at all this year, or really, to be honest, for the for the remainder of 2016 after he had won the Masters. Um, tough to see him kind of go through this, but... Uh, I don't. I don't see him playing very well this week, Cassie. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer because he's still so young. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd think maybe he'd get it back together, you know, midway through that 2016 season, but he never really did. And I feel like there's a lot of responsibilities being the Masters champion. I I think it's a lot of people's favorite, so uh, major championship that is. And um, whether you know, as the defending champ, there's a lot of media responsibilities. There's you know, tickets for, you know, your family, your family's there and stuff. So I'm not sure if he's ready for it this year. And I, I'm going to have to agree with you and say he misses the cut. Yeah, hopefully he's not a player like maybe Trevor Illman, you know, a guy who won once and then never really did much else afterwards. I, I think he has more talent than that, though. So hopefully yeah. uh, hopefully he's not scarred by, you know, what happened at the Ryder Cup with, with his brother and everything and that whole experience. Hopefully he just brushes that off and, and moves on in the right direction. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. Yeah. But as of right now, our show is um, concluded. And uh, we'd love for you to visit globalgolfpost.com all week long for all Masters coverage. Our PGA Tour insider, Ron Green Jr., is there all week. And he will bring you blog after blog all week long. For Sean and I, hit him straight, and we'll talk to you next week. All right. See you later.